Good morning, church. It is great to see you this morning. As Pastor Brody shared, the opportunity to open the Word together and to hear some things God wants to tell us today. We're going to start with a phrase that perhaps you're familiar with and have heard before. Where were you when? I look at the audience today, those who are in our fellowship, and there were surely uh, some here that were around when they heard the shocking news of the bombing at Pearl Harbor. Or you remember the place where you were and what you were doing when you heard about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Significant events in our world that became etched in our memory based on what had occurred. It's amazing how you can just recall perhaps what you were wearing or what you were doing 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago or more because of the significance of the circumstances. More of us here remember the events around 9-11. September 11th, 2001, the day when several jetliners that were hijacked and flew in the Twin Towers in the Pentagon with many lives that were lost, a nation that was shocked as we watched it unfold before our eyes. And you likely remember the mood in our country like I do in the days and months that followed that horrific day. Our country had been attacked. The nation, we, as a nation, we collectively experienced a pain and a mourning together. I remember well how our culture changed for a period of time. Like, I remember advertising, for instance, advertising on the radio or advertising on the television where there would normally be a lot of levity and humor and there was an appropriate amount of sobriety and soberness and seriousness about things for a period of time. And in the midst of this sobriety, believers and unbelievers alike, if we remember, evaluated their lives in ways perhaps they hadn't before. There was a new attention to safety, security, family. And I believe in many ways God used those hurtful circumstances to help us reassess our priorities. To be reminded of the brevity of life and to evaluate and prioritize those things that matter most. As we think about those circumstances and what matters most, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, where Michael had already read for us. And as we enter into the lesson in the book of 2 Timothy, what we're going to be looking at is a setting and a context that also includes a seriousness and significant assessment of what matters most. The setting here was a critical time in the young history of the New Testament church. Timothy is Paul's son in the faith. He's the leader of the church at Ephesus. And Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus to address serious doctrinal issues and sinful behaviors. And now Paul writes this letter at a time when there's great persecution and suffering. Paul had largely been deserted by his fellow workers. Knowing his execution was near, Paul writes what some call his last will and testament. He said in chapter 4 and verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. The book of 2 Timothy was the last of Paul's inspired letters. And God used this very environment of suffering and persecution for Paul to bring into clear focus the things that matter most. These things are very instructive for us today as well. It really details what the church is to be all about in this day and to understand what's necessary in faithful ministry to Christ. The book of 2 Timothy has about 25 imperative commands. We're going to be looking at a portion of those in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And what we're going to be looking at are essential elements of faithful ministry. Essential elements of faithful ministry. Look there at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, if you will. 
Paul tells Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Here Paul commands Timothy to be strengthened, to be strong. I don't know about you, but when I'm reading the Bible, I often ask myself the question, whether it's a command, what might be the reason behind that? In the context here in 2 Timothy, you can look back, for instance, at 2 Timothy 1.7 and, and chapter 1 and verse 8, where we see Timothy addressing perhaps some of Timothy's weaknesses, his vulnerabilities to drift towards shyness or weakness. Look there at chapter 1, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And you see in verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed. And we have no evidence that Timothy was ashamed, and yet Paul gives us instruction to be strengthened. I think we can understand a little bit more of what's behind this command if we jump over to chapter 1 and verse 15, where Paul reminds Timothy of spiritual casualties from several of their co-workers in the ministry. He says there in chapter 1 and verse 15, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Now, when we are introduced to different characters in the Bible, we either get a lot of text and we understand a little bit more who they are, and there's those other cases where you're introduced to a character and you just get one verse. And that's these two individuals. One verse dedicated to them, and this is all we know of them. We don't know if they forsook the faith, but in testing, they left. This, of course, is contrasted with Onesiphorus in verse 16 of chapter 1, who stood by Paul in God's work, not ashamed of his chains. So in this context, Paul instructs Timothy, do not be ashamed, do not lack courage, and he contrasts that with some real-life circumstances of some of his co-workers in the faith, some who stood firm to the end, like Anisiphorus, and those who fell away and deserted Paul and the gospel in his greatest need. So it was here that was Paul's desire for Timothy to weather the storm, to be an Anisiphorus, to be strong. The admonition to be strong. As I think about that and applied it to my own heart as I've been studying this passage, I am certainly reminded of the underlying reality that's true for all of us. We are weak in our sin nature. We have prevailing frailties that we easily succumb to. I, you remember with me how the hymn writer framed it so well, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You know, for so many of you, as I look at you today, I see hearts that want to serve Christ, a desire to serve him and follow him and obey him and worship our Lord Jesus with our lives. And yet we're faced with the same reality every day. It's a battle, isn't it? We battle against sin, we battle against self, we battle against unbelief. We relate well to Paul in Romans 7, don't we? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So as we strive for Christ's likeness, it just may seem, in fact, it may be true at times, we, we're going one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, three steps back. And uh, it just seems like we're going against the tide and against the flow. And I, as I consider my own times of failure and vulnerability, I often find myself trusting in my own strength, my own abilities, rather than the strength and the power that God promises that is in the grace of Christ Jesus. So look again there at verse 1 and you see, my child, be strengthened. Now, the grammar here is important to understand. Be strengthened. It's important for a proper understanding. This command to be strengthened is something we must do However, the language speaks of something that is done to us rather than something that is done from us. Something done to us rather than something from us. Okay? Notice Paul doesn't say, hey, Timothy, 
Suck it up, buttercup. Uh, Timmy, get your big boy's pants on. It's time to start living for Christ. It's time to gut it out for the glory of God. No. You are to find your strength. You're commanded to have strength. But Timothy, it's not going to come from you. It's going to come from something outside yourself. Timothy was commanded to be strengthened. It's much like the passage we see, and you'll remember, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. The one and only true source for Christian living is from the Lord himself. You'll remember John 15, verse 5. Maybe you're thinking about that, of, of realizing how much we need Christ and how little we are to depend on ourselves. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So here Paul instructed Timothy that he was to be strengthened by something outside himself, and that something is what? Look again at verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We're to be strengthened by grace. Grace, that undeserved, that unearned favor of God, that work of God in the believer's life that we are just in, just completely incapable of doing ourselves. That beautiful, beautiful, amazing grace. Jerry Bridges, he has written well on the topic of grace, and he draws a complementary distinction on how grace is realized in the believer's life. Two things. Grace is realized in our standing with God, and grace is realized in our strength from God. Our standing and our strength, okay? Uh, Paul writes well here, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, I think it summarizes what Jerry Bridges was saying. It, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. What do we see here? First, we see our standing with God is all of grace. His grace toward me was not in vain. It's a past work of grace. It's something God has done miraculous. It was not something I could do myself. For by grace you have been saved, not of yourselves. It's the grace of God, not a result of works, right? And yet we also see that this grace is a strength. A strength from God. It's all of grace. The grace of God that is with me. A present work of grace. This is more what's being spoken about really in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Timothy's reliance on the grace of God for the strength for Christian living. Notice how Paul even said here, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It speaks of an empowering grace for godly and holy living. It's grace for today. It's grace at work. Paul makes it clear here the Christian life cannot depend on what you can do for yourself. And oh, believe me, we know there's much we must do. Paul worked harder than any of them. And yet we see beneath it all the reality that I am desperately incapable of doing it myself. To put another way, I must renounce all efforts to try to live the Christian life in my power. Well, how do we do this? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who states things much better than I can, uh, said it like this. The secret of power is to discover and to learn from the New Testament what is possible for us in Christ. What I have to do is to go to Christ. I must spend my time with him. I must meditate upon him. I must get to know him. That was Paul's ambition, that I might know him. I must maintain my contact and communion with Christ, and I must concentrate on knowing him. To be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus speaks of a 
dependence, a trust in who God is as the only true source of power and enablement. Yet it doesn't stop here. The grace of God is our strength for Christian living. It is something we must depend on and strive to know Christ in his fullness. But his power supplies sufficient strength because there is much to do. Martin Lloyd-Jones continues to speak. What else? I must do exactly what he tells me. I must avoid things that would hamper. If in the midst of persecution we want to feel as Paul felt, we must live as Paul lived. I must do what he tells me, both to do and not to do. I must read the Bible. I must exercise. I must practice the Christian life. I must live the Christian life in all its fullness. And this is precisely where Paul takes Timothy next. Timothy, remember, there's those we've ministered to that are not ministering with us anymore. They were ashamed of the gospel. I want you to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and not just acknowledge the strength. I want you now to be empowered for Christian living in the things I'm going to command you to do, but only by the grace and the strength that is in ChristEsus, and that's what we're going to see in verses two through seven. So let's look at our next point in the essential elements of faithful ministry. There is be strong in Christ, and secondly, there is invest in others. Invest in others. Look there at verse two of Second Timothy two two, and you see investing in others. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What you have heard from me. So Paul draws Timothy's attention to the scriptural instruction. And we see from other verses the life of Paul that Timothy had received from him. And then what does he say? Timothy, recognize your deposit of truth. And now I want you to do something with it. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy was instructed to take an inventory what kind of instruction he had received from Paul. Think over it. As Pastor Stephen mentioned a little bit earlier, thinking of those who had worked in his life and the pastors and the mentors and the counselors and take inventory of the good deposit of truth and the lives that have been modeled. Think of that, Timothy, as you think of me. And then I want you to do something intentional. I want you to find others who are faithful to receive instruction from you with the idea that one day they're going to pass it on to others. As you look at this verse, perhaps you're thinking like me of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, right? Where we're to make disciples of all nations, and Jesus said we're to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. This has always been God's program, to make Christ followers by investing in others. I want you to think with me, of a circumstance that perhaps you've seen before or witnessed and maybe you've heard about, at least in the news, where a human chain is put together on a beachfront, maybe at an ocean or a lake. And in a human chain, you've got individuals that are locking themselves hand in hand to reach someone in the water that's struggling for their life. They're either caught in an undertow or an undercurrent or they've just run out of strength And in order to reach them, you have some that are stretched in the sand and they're they're holding their hands as they're ankle deep in water. And as they go out further, there are some that are waist deep and then others that are just wading out there. But what are they doing? They're holding each other's hands in a human chain to meet somebody that's in great need. Now, you can pick any number of people you want, 25, 30, 35 people that have a human chain to reach the person in need. And yet failure occurs when only one person lets go. Think, if you will, in my loose graphic here, the chain of spiritual reproduction. You can look at this as a human chain in this graphic here. And what do we see in 2 Timothy 2.2? We see Paul saying, Timothy, take what I've taught you, Take this deposit of truth. Take what you've seen in me. And now I want you to be intentional and go find faithful people 
that you can give the same instruction to in order that they may teach others also. Let's bring it home a little bit further for you. If you were in the place of Timothy, we have this great number of teachers and pastors and mentors and parents and counselors that have spent just immeasurable time investing in you and investing in me with the idea of what? That we would then commit those things to faithful people to be true to this passage that would be faithful then to teach others. The spiritual chain of disciple-making. You could look at it like this. Disciple-making. The intentional sharing of oneself for the spiritual benefit of another. This verse explains it so well. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you have become very dear to us. That's the essence of disciple making. It's life on life. It's investing in others. It's the sharing of yourself. So what must I do? Well, as with a human chain, I must extend my hand and always be extending my hand to receive the deposit of truth from teachers, from mentors, from counselors, from, from, from those that disciple me, from those that are a little further in the faith, that, that those have understood something better than I have. I must always be holding out my hand and receiving But to be obedient to the verse, I cannot keep my hand here, can I? I must extend it. If I'm to make disciples, I must take that deposit of truth and now extend it to someone else that would be faithful with it, with the idea that they would then commit it to others. The spiritual chain of reproduction. Now, you think about a passage like this, and I'm just encouraged. It gives great meaning and purpose for why we're here, doesn't it? To train followers of Jesus. That they would be better followers of Jesus. To invest in others. As I look at the different faces here today, uh, there's a lot of different walks of life. Many of you are in very different circumstances right now. Some of you are in the throes of absolute craziness when you have a young family with children running around looking just for that opportunity to have a meal, to sit down without a glass of water being spilled or someone dirtying their diaper or someone throwing up on their way to church. And you know how it goes. It's a busy time of life. And some of you may be thinking, how could I do this? I surely have to wait Another 20 years before I can fulfill this command. Now, surely you're doing this already to your children. You're investing in them that they may invest in others in the future. But something I'd like you to think about how you might extend your ministry as a family to others that need to grow is is just this. Invite young people into your chaos. Let them in. Don't wait for life to be polished. Don't wait for the home to be perfectly choreographed. That's not what they need to see. They need to see you in the battle of what it means to raise a family that they may know themselves and that they may know themselves how you are strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You can model that for them. Empty nesters like myself. I've seen a number of you. Uh, in small groups, in adult Bible schools. Just take a young person aside or someone that's not quite a, a, fur, a farther along in, in the faith as you are and just investing in them, pouring into them, inviting them to your home, going out for coffee, talking about life and just showing how much Jesus means to you. Senior saints, you're a treasure to our church. You've been around the block many more times than I or many of us have. You've walked the faith. You've learned how to follow Jesus for so many years in all the ups and downs and the journeys of of following our Lord and Savior that we all want to follow and we all want to obey and we all want to worship. 
And you might be thinking, what do I have to offer? There's such an age gap (laughs) between me and others. What can I possibly offer? I must say, uh, Christy and I, in our early days of college ministry, I, I had the mistaken notion that I had to be a peer in order to relate to the ones I was ministering to. And in the early days, I was a peer. Um, and although I had a lot more energy than I did then, um, also uh, I had a lot less wisdom. And one thing I didn't really realize was how much at this age young people would depend and look and, 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 and pursue those that have been there already before them. Uh, it's a beautiful thing to see a young person say, I, I need help. Avail yourself. People sit next to you or intentionally going and finding another young person and teaching them how to love Christ and follow them. It's life on life. By the way, one of the recharge classes that will be made available, available is on discipleship. And I would encourage you, if you want to understand more about that, that you dig into that and attend. So, essential elements of faithful ministry. Paul says, Timothy, be strong in Christ. Invest in others. And next, number three, embrace resistance. Embrace resistance. Look there at verse three with me in 2 Timothy chapter two, where Paul says this. He says, Timothy, share in suffering or hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The same phrase, to share in suffering, is used a little early in the, in the letter. If you look back at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, what does Paul say? He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In this uh, passage here, we get a little fuller understanding of what Timothy uh, is being asked to do by Paul. What does he say here, first of all? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. The gospel message. That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and and the only way to the Father. That by only the confession of sins and the repentance of sins and trusting in the grace of Christ Jesus alone can I be saved and forgiven and accepted and be made a child of God. Don't be ashamed of this message. But Paul adds on, he says, nor of me his prisoner. Paul knew well that for Timothy to associate with Paul may very well mean persecution for him. As Paul instructs Timothy to participate in persecution and hardship in the Christian life, he he is telling us that there is an expected outcome of resistance, of hardship, of pushback when we speak and live for Jesus Christ. Now, if you're like me, in times when we're living for him and striving to live for him and we're we're doing everything we feel we need to do to to be devoted to God and to chase after him and and to share the gospel, and then we get some pushback and we get some insults. Maybe we lose a friendship and perhaps you ask yourself like I do, like I do me, what do I do to deserve this? I've just been trying to to share. I've just been trying to to live for God. Why all the pushback? And the instruction from Paul is clear. Share in suffering. Share in suffering. One of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, said this, It behooves thee not to complain if thou endure hardness, but to complain if thou dost not endure hardness. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13 said this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We must embrace the reality of spiritual resistance that come as we strive in areas of faithfulness. To step out for Christ will mean that sometimes you will be stepped on. You're a witness at the workplace and you refuse to laugh at the sexual jokes and the innuendos and the coarse conversation. And some will not take kindly to that. You share Christ and you're a witness 
and you share uh, the Lord with an unsafe friend and the exclusive claims of Jesus on them, and some of them may not talk to you again. Satan, the culture, evildoers will often press against you when you strive to please Christ and commit yourself to full obedience to him. I was a young believer in college that did not know the Lord. And God, by his grace, gave me a young believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who started teaching me things I'd never heard before. I was a religious person, but I did not know the gospel. For almost two years, I resisted what I felt God was tugging my heart to do, to give my life to Christ. And eventually I did. My roommate was uh, a bold witness for the Lord. He was courageous. We lived in an all-guy dorm on a secular campus that had his fair share of ungodliness um, and wild living that was going on. And yet we knew God put us right where he wanted us. But as my roommate would share Christ, never looking to pick a fight, never trying to make a scene, but just explaining to sinners that they needed to confess and repent and trust in the only one that could forgive them and, and, and break this cycle of, of sin in their lives that was just destroying them in, in front of everybody. Many students did not take kindly to this. There were big pushbacks in the dorm. And as a very young believer, I was not ready for this yet. Here I was with my roommate as he's being a bold witness, and I don't know how to do that yet. But there's guilt by association, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, and I had to learn right away that if I was going to stay the roommate of this faithful witness, that I would have to also endure the scorn of the people that did not want to hear what needed to be said. By God's grace, I stuck it out. Our room, you could have called Holy Roller Central, right? That was everybody's opinion. It's that room down the hall where those religious, uh, you know, Jesus followers live. And it was not an unusual situation where drunken individuals would come to our door all hours of the night, uh, sharing and just screaming obscenities about our Lord, about us, taking beer bottles and just crashing them against our door. I remember one time coming back from uh, campus and going to my dorm room. And, you know, my, my testimony, um, it wasn't verbal yet. I had to, like, hand out tracts, which was all great and, and fine. But that, that was the extent of what I could do and what I felt I could do. So our, our dorm room door was filled with tracts, and invitation to our Bible study, and uh, Bible verses that we wrote out. My mom would sometimes write them in calligraphy for me, and we would, it was just all filled, just like a collage of Jesus loves you, uh, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, right? And I remember coming back one day, and everything on the door was gone. And, in fact, our door was black with soot, and there was a pile of ashes on the floor, and someone had lit everything up in flames. And there went my testimony, all up in smoke, right? Right there. Uh, it was a difficult environment. And yet, and yet, we see God, we saw God work when I saw my roommate share in suffering. There was one individual in particular that I was particularly scared of. He was like the leader of the dorm. He would, when he jumped left, everybody jumped left. When he jumped right, everyone jumped right. And he had a scorn for Christians and for what our Lord uh, represented. And uh, I was scared of this person. Uh, we'll, we'll change his name to protect the innocent. We'll just call him Saul for illustrat- illustrative purposes here. But Saul uh, would go about uh, just giving us a hard time. And I remember a knock on our door late one night. My roommate and I I were studying for midterms. And um, we, uh, it was probably well past midnight. A knock on the door, and it was Saul. And Saul 
just my, I almost swallowed my, my tongue when I saw him. I didn't know what to say. And he said one thing, I'm ready. I'm ready. Now, I had no idea what he meant. This was Saul, guys. <laughs> he was a persecutor. He was the leader. And he said, as he sat down together, my roommate knowing what to do, not myself, but my roommate, but just witnessing his testimony and sharing that God had just been eating himself up. And every scorn and every broken beer bottle against our door, every opportunity he had to profane the name of the Lord, it was just eating him up inside because he knew what the gospel had to say and what it demanded of him. And he trusted Christ that night. Uh, I tell you, we, we didn't sleep that night. I'm not sure I slept for a week. It was, it was glorious. It was victorious. It was wonderful. And surely you have stories like this yourself, testimonies of great things God has done. But as I recall what happened, I am reminded that my roommate had a choice. When resistance came, he could either step back and water it down, or he could share in suffering. My roommate chose the latter, and I slowly learned to do the same, and sinners were converted. Our understanding through this lens of what Paul is explaining to Timothy is absolutely critical here. If comfort and ease is my goal, I cannot be a faithful follower here. There's something about when resistance comes and we step back that we're not faithful and true to the message. So when our faithfulness is met with resistance, we have a choice to make. We can step back or we can accelerate. And Paul says, share in suffering. Accelerate. We're to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, as we're told here in verse 3. And we'll talk more about the soldier in our next point, about essential elements of a faithful ministry. Point number four, three understandable metaphors. Three understandable metaphors. Illustrations given by Paul to show us how to serve faithfully to God in the midst of suffering. Illustrations, metaphors that help us make it understandable. This is what you're to do, Timothy. This is what you're to do, church, when you face suffering. And he makes it so understandable. He makes it so clear for us. My, uh, my father was an engineer at NASA, a NASA engineer. And when you think of a NASA engineer, maybe you think of at least two words that I think of. Smart and scientific. Is that what you think of? So when I'm working in the house and there's something difficult I need to do, and my wife, Christy, tells me, uh, you need to be the engineer on this, I think of my father. I need to be smart. I need to be scientific. I've got to engineer this properly. And here Paul gives us three metaphors that make the Christian life and, and how we live it faithfully in the midst of Suffering in the midst of resistance. Three metaphors, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Let's look at that first one here as we see three understandable metaphors. The soldier. You could, be sum, you could summarize what Paul is saying about the soldier as a single-minded devotion to please God. Look there at verse 4 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. A soldier has a mission, right? They've received orders, and now they must act on them to fulfill them. And to complete the mission, they must avoid entanglement in civilian or non-military type pursuits. Do not become entangled. This uh, word for entangled means to be tied up or braided or twisted. It's to be so, become so intertwined that you're finally caught up in it and not easily separated. I have vines that grow on my property, up my trees, and maybe you have the same. If you own any property here in Virginia, 
there's a whole lot more vines here than we had in Ohio, okay? And they just want to grow up everything. And they grow up the trees and they start just taking over and just have a stranglehold on the beautiful tree I want to see. I don't want to see the vine. I want to see the tree. So what do I do? In wintertime, I just take it upon myself to take down a few vines and I, I will cut the base of the vine. And as I pull on it, I find out in most cases I cannot get it off the tree. It is so entangled and so wrapped up around the tree, I can't get it down. So what I've learned to do is I wait a few months for the vine to give up the ghost, so to speak, and then I can finally let go and I can get that vine away. Entangled. Entanglements. We need to think hard about this. The scriptures inform us that there is a point where we pursue the many good things of life, the stuff, the activities, the things of this world, and I'm talking about, yes, even good things here, okay? That we get so entangled with the temporary that we miss the mission. First John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, let me be clear. The scriptures are not telling us to not enjoy the good things and the good gifts that God's given us here. But what he is warning us to do is to work at preserving our first love. We're not talking about avoiding a weekend of fun at the amusement park, but rather avoiding a lifestyle that is an amusement park. You understand the difference? Well, how do I avoid entanglements? Where is that line? And certainly it's not my place standing here looking at you today to say this activity is too much or this pursuit has crossed the line. But let me at least leave you with this and what Jesus has told us. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what does Rich Brown ask himself? Well, where's my, where are my energies going? Where's my time going? What do I wake up living for? What, do I, what is it that I can't stop talking about? Rich, do you have time and energy and attention to fulfill the duties that Christ has called me to do? Proverbs 4.23 makes it clear. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Work on the heart in order to keep a single-minded devotion to please God. There's a second metaphor that Paul mentions to exemplify faithfulness in the face of suffering, and that's the athlete. God's rules are the true measure of success. Look there at verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, you know, athletic competitions, they were, they were, they're popular today, and they were certainly popular in ancient times in Roman and Greek society. And as we know, the essence of an athlete is effort. It's preparation. It's competing. It's striving for victory. And just as there's no shortcuts in the preparations necessary for an athlete to win... There are no shortcuts to maturing in godly character in your life. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says this, Train yourself for godliness. And look there again at verse 5. It informs us that those who are crowned or the victors are those who compete according to the rules. Just like in athletic competitions today, back in ancient times, there were rules that were important to be followed. In fact, if you go to the ancient Olympic Games, there were three primary rules that had to be kept. You had to be a true-born Greek. You had to swear an oath before Zeus that you had prepared for ten months prior to the competition. And then thirdly, you had to follow the rules that pertain to the event. Failure to comply to any of those rules meant immediate disqualification. In like fashion, Paul has informed us that God has established rules for us, for God-honoring ministry. And we know that these rules of the game are just largely, and they're just fully exemplified and shown and clearly portrayed to us in the Word of God. I believe David captured, captures this thought very well in his love for the Word and how it had an impact for him that in many ways he could strive as an athlete for the glory of God. He says in Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And look as I underline here, 
the various ways in which the Word of God, God's rules, God's way of living, God's rules for life. Look how, how many times he puts it here. He says, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for he is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every false way. I believe David's heart, as described here, just describes the essence of an athlete striving to live by God's rules. And may God give us the same heart as we strive in faithfulness and fidelity to his word. There's one more metaphor that Paul gives Timothy, and that's the farmer. Exhaust yourself for God, and he will bring the results. If you look there at verse 6, the instruction to Timothy, it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Boy, when I think of farmer, when I think of good farmers, I think of hard workers. This word for hard-working means weariness, as though beaten. It's a proper and expected tiredness and fatigue that results from hard work and physical labor like that of a farmer. Go back to the verse there and you see the specific hard work is leading to something in particular. What's the point? It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think with me, if you will. When a farmer works hard, they have to plan. They have to plant. They have to nurture They have to tend before they have any ideas or any ambitions of getting a harvest, something they can reap. All along the way, in all the patience and the hard work, the farmer's eye has his attention on an expected result, and that's a bountiful harvest, the fruits of his labor. Galatians 6.9 says it well. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It's an encouragement to us. It's a motivation for us, for the Christian to expend themselves for God, that we may honor and glorify him. And as we labor for God, not giving up, exhausting ourselves for him, it's all knowing that God will produce the fruit. Be encouraged to exhaust yourselves for God, to utilize your giftings for the benefit of others, to serve and minister and labor. And God says in his time, he will produce the fruits of your labors as he sees fit in his time and for his glory. Essential elements of faithful ministry. One final point as we close. As Paul teaches us here in verse 7, my reflection in God's promise. Look there at verse 7, if you will. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul has just shared the essential elements of faithful ministry in the previous passage, and now he provides one more command at this point that just ties everything together. Think over what I say. Take time to give due consideration of these faithful aspects of ministry. Ponder it. Think it through. Take time aside to reflect, Timothy. In other words, I believe Paul was telling Timothy, Timothy, this is important. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other. Don't make it something where this is a quick devotion, I'm off to something bigger and better. Don't relegate these important commands into just options or suggestions. And I have to ask myself, how can I be not just a hearer, but a doer of what Paul has told me here? I think it would be appropriate to even ask yourself some probing questions after covering verses 1 through 6 to invest some mental energy and just to take some inventory. Am I inclined to serve God on my effort alone? How can I learn to find strength from this grace in 
Christ Jesus? Am I investing in others? Is it really on my radar at all? Lord, I confess I've been lost in myself. Lord, show me how to reorient my life and invest in others for their spiritual good. What is my response when conflict comes, when I face resistance? Lord, I must confess I'm I'm tempted to run, to hide, to back off. Give me courage to share in suffering for your name. Do I see my life in Christ as a battle that calls me to duty to avoid entanglements? Do I strive to discipline myself for Christ in all honor? Do I work with all my might, exhausting myself for God's glory, knowing he will give the increase for my efforts? And verse 7 has a motivation, a promise for those who reflect and consider what he has said. Look what he says there in verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It's a promise. That if we commit ourselves to consider what God says, thinking on how to apply these things, God will teach us how to rearrange life. God promises understanding. God will help us apply these truths. In other words, you're not left on your own. The psalmist said it well. He said, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Lord, I go to your law. I see what you asked me to do. And now there's, a, there's something you must do to me. Open my eyes. Give me understanding. As I commit myself to these truths and what you've asked me to do and called me to do, I, I ask, Lord, that you'd fulfill your promise in showing me and helping me and reassuring myself that I'm not on my own in these important tasks that you've presented before me. May God give you help as I am praying for myself and praying for you in engaging yourself in the essential elements of faithful ministry. May you be blessed, may the Lord be blessed, and may you bring blessing to many others. Amen. If I could uh, have Stephen come and you can close our service, brother.